Welcome to this week's episode of The Last Refuge. I'm your friendly neighborhood dungeon master, DM Jazzy Hands. This is it. The last episode before season 10. We can finally stop teasing and tell you all that the day after this episode releases, the entire TLR team, me, Alex, Lydia, Karin, Taryn, and story consultant Robert, are headed to Los Angeles to shoot the end of our story. We've got a studio, and we're going to finish this campaign all together in the same room at the same table. And we're going to tape it. Our hope is to start releasing episodes on Wednesday, January 11th, and we'll be releasing both podcast audio here on our feed and video recordings of the episodes on YouTube so that hopefully you all can get a little taste of what it's like to sit at the table with us. We anticipate that the season is going to be about 8 to 10 episodes, so it'll be much shorter than all our previous seasons, but at this point there's only so much of our story left. But that's not for a while yet, and we've still got one more episode to get through. As I mentioned last week, I decided that what you're about to hear would suffer from a bunch of ads in the middle. So very quickly here at the top, I want to acknowledge folks that help make our show what it is. Thank you to Idle Champions for providing us with codes every week and spreading the word about our show. Thank you to D&D Beyond for seeing something in us from the very beginning and removing financial barriers from their service. And thank you to BattleBards, Kevin McLeod, Scott Buckley, and all of the other amazing sound effect and music artists for allowing us to use your beautiful works to enhance our story. Also, this trip to LA, this video season would not be possible with the absolutely mind-blowing and continued support of our patrons, all of whom, past and present, we want to take a minute to thank right now. So strap in. Thank you so much to ARK. Shimmy Gangot, Tanya, Seven, Aaron Stevens, Eliahu of Merck Grove, Eugenio, Harmony Bat, James Ann Lovely, Lisa Diane Mercado Etheridge, Misty, Trigger Treat, Kin, Adam Mando Wookie, Assie McGee, Avari Roman, Bria A, Casual Pops, Elian, Gordon Ross, Jabari Bunch, Jacob Finkel, Jay Sprig, Kelsey G, Lavender Kazi, Lucas Hokum, Nat Rose, Popcorn Lizard, Reed Wilson, River Daniel, Rob Murphy, The Geekery, Sam Ellis, Sam Rodman, Shane, Sophia, Stephen Mosley, Stephen Sikora, Steffi Bernard, Tanya C. DePass, Tony A. Ellis, Tyree Pace, Verpio, Adria Robinson, Adrian Bundy, Colin Baker, Ernest Anderson, Fell Outlier, Haley Dahl, Kelsey R., Lisa Argemma, Matthew Allen, Something Wicked, Serena Marie, Dan Dillon, Hannah, Red Hand Roleplay, Reed D., and Stephen Rowe. Whether you were with us for one month or joined the Patreon when it launched and are still supporting our show, none of this would have been possible without you. Thanks. All right, the preliminaries are done. I think it's time. Let's dive in. Last time, we looked in on Bria and Bizdira as they spent their last evening before the return, reflecting. 
Now, we turn to Flick and Kit as they do their best to trust in their preparations, to settle their minds, and perhaps to take care of some unfinished business they feel is within their control. Unsurprisingly, we first find Flick soaring above the treetops of the western island of the Last Refuge, trying to grab hold of some peace. It's proving to be more difficult than he anticipated, though, and he finally drops his head in frustration and disappointment. With a sigh, he points his broom towards the ground and speeds down into the forest. Confidently guiding the broom through the trees with his legs, he slowly removes one hand from the broom handle, and then the other, and reaches for his pan flute. With a steadying breath, the wind whipping through his horns, he begins to play. And as he does, he finally finds some order to his thoughts. can't even fly anymore. The wind whistling between my horns, the sound of my robes billowing behind me, the endless horizon changing colors with the setting sun, it all used to calm me. The once pristine skyline is now spattered with towers of billowing smoke and ash as fire continues to relentlessly take hold of the island. We used to just get whiffs of burning wood or charred earth on the air, but it seems the smells are permanent now. I really only notice it when I've spent extended time down in the tunnels and then come up above ground again, and there it is. It's enough to make you want to leave, run away or something. Ugh, like guard. I only wish we had seen it coming, you know? All of my divination gifts from the Shimmer Scale, and now the daily warnings from Uza of fire attacks, and I still couldn't foresee his power growing so quickly. And of course it did. It makes sense, considering his direct connection to fire itself. I suppose his escape was inevitable once he learned how to open a portal large enough to actually fit through. Inevitable, and... quite dangerous. <laughs> And here we thought Rithmala would have to be the one we'd need to keep heavy eyes on. Luckily, the Guardians and Robert have been successful in keeping most of the threats that make their way through the portal at bay. It scares me to think what would happen if anything found its way out of the Arcanium. Our emergency forces are swamped enough as it is. Biz keeps begging us to let her speed through Guard's chamber to try and get eyes on the doorway itself, and confirm whether or not the portal actually opens to the plane of fire like we think, but Kit insists it's too dangerous. I have to agree. And with the reports coming out of the Arcanium every day about the creatures that keep escaping the portal, the plane of fire feels like a safe bet in my book, to be honest. Even if we could assess the situation properly, we don't have the resources or the energy to close that doorway right now. Not with everything else that's going on. All we can do is hope that Guard stays in his new home until we've figured out how to close the doorway. 
Bria suggested that we won't even be able to close it until the beast is... Well, gone? Defeated? Are we completely fooling ourselves here? No, Flick, don't go there. Stay here. In this moment. Ugh, I sound like Uza. How exhausting. <laughs> Turning to my music and playing my thoughts aloud seems to be the only way to actually keep calm and stay present in these final hours. These last moments until... Well, tomorrow, the big day. The focus it takes to play, to clear my mind of these thoughts, to make the most pleasing sound, or... Well, it's not always pleasing, but it doesn't always have to be, I guess. Some spells sound pretty nasty, to be honest. That one tune that opens up the spectral door and takes me and a friend through it to a nearby place is definitely not what I would call catchy. (laughs) See what I mean? If I don't focus... And that's what this... Battle? No. War. I have to call it what it is. That's what this war is going to take. Focus. Playing definitely requires me to focus. To tell you the truth, siphoning magic this way feels very similar to the ritual of consecration they taught me at Spirit Soaring. Wow. I haven't thought of that place in years. To say that feels like a different life is... Well, what's beneath an understatement? (laughs) Oh, focus, flick, spirit soaring. Spirit soaring, with its warm, tapestry-adorned hallways, filled with candelabras that never burn out. Ugh, how ironic, I'm still surrounded by fires that can't be put out. (laughs) Funny to think I used to consider that my home. I suppose it still is, in a way. Which means Bria and Kit and Biz all have their own homes, too. Will we all go back to our own homes? Or will we even have the opportunity? And, And if by some miracle we even do, will they choose to... I've never felt this before. I've never... I've never felt... Well, I guess this is the first time I've ever truly called anyone my family. And I don't want to lose that. (laughs) I thought the monks and other clerics at Spirit Soaring had seen me through my worst, but my sisters, they've... They've not only picked me up from losing everything I had, but proceeded to push me to discover passions and abilities I never knew I was even capable of discovering. I guess... I guess it's difficult to imagine my future without them. Them and everyone else. Oryx and Dranks. Hinko, the stylish little kobold who volunteers to cut and groom my hair. Sometimes his trims are a little experimental for my taste, but he's just the greatest conversationalist. And Olapore, that guardian officer who loved the flute choir so much, he asked that we play one of my original songs for for his birthday party. The rest of the guests 
definitely seemed a little confused as to why we were there, but he loved it, and that's what counts. And Jayla, Barnes' five-year-old niece who loves to ride on my shoulders and steer me around with my horns and pretend she's dragon racing as I huff and puff around the tunnels. <laughs> that's the hardest part of all this. Knowing that, unfortunately, not everyone will see the other side of it. But also knowing that there is another side. We are proof of that. Well, not, not even us, but everyone we've met since we were sent here. Everyone who's rallied and agreed to give their lives to this cause, make this their, their life's purpose. They are proof that survival is possible. And I intend to survive. And I intend to with every fiber of my being save as many of us as I can. Because if I know anything, it's that survival means life and loss. <laughs> That's scarier to me than not making it. Whether we take out the beast or not, future generations must know our story. This world's story. For the sake of those who will ultimately give their lives in this war. And, well, I want to be there. For all of it. So when, when I am on the other side, I can play and tell of our adventures with my family, playing back our memories together on the other side of all of this, playing the music that we wrote together. As Flick finishes his song, his flute, which had begun to shine from the moment he started playing, slowly dims. Though the forest around him should be dark, light still shines from behind him. He turns and nods with satisfaction as he sees hundreds of feet of shining script floating in the air, following the path he just took through the trees. His spell, the Stream of Consciousness, was a success. He rummages through his bag of holding, pulling out a leather-bound tome filled with page after page of music. He locates a blank page and holds the book toward the glowing words with one hand, using his other to brace himself against the broomstick. In a flash, he's off, zipping back along the path he took, the blank pages of the tome absorbing every last floating word. When he reaches the end of the stream, which is, of course, the beginning of his story, he takes the book in both hands and looks down at the pages, now filled with new, shimmering musical notations. He smiles and thinks, I can't wait to play this for them someday. Thank you, Flick. That book, those songs, those stories, will be read and sung and told for generations. And finally, Kit. She sits at her desk, preparing to write, but not in a book or a journal. Instead, there's a stack of loose parchment in front of her, 
and several balled-up pieces of parchment lying around the desk and on the floor around her. She seems composed, even confident, the sister who's always right if you were to ask her siblings. But as she looks down at the blank page, the facade cracks a bit as she thinks the same thing she's thought before and will think again. How can a person write a letter that they have no idea how to send? She takes a deep breath, shakes her head, dips her quill, and begins to write. Dear Mom, It's weird to be writing this letter to you, knowing that you'll probably never see it, that you'll probably never find out what happened to me why I disappeared one day and never came back. I guess I owe you an apology for not writing sooner, but how can a person write a letter that they have no idea how to send? Which brings me back to the whole point about this being kind of pointless because I'm writing you a letter in a world that's in all likelihood about to be decimated by a giant elemental beast. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I know you're probably worried sick about me, probably have been worried sick about me since I disappeared, but for a while, it was great. You would have had nothing to worry about. My father called to me and three others. He gave us a mission and transported us to a new world. I know you never really talked about my father, so that's probably a shock, but honestly, there's not much to say about that. He was kind of a jerk, and my friends and I figured out pretty quickly that we could make our own impact on the world, one that makes this world better for all the people living here. By the way, I said friends, but really they're my siblings, and two of them are actually my sisters. Did you know about them? Bria and Vizdira? And one, Flick, is just like a brother to me. I don't know what I would have done without them. There were so many times where we were in danger, and I knew in my gut that I would do anything to save them. Even if I die here, I'm so grateful to have met them. You should know that. Even if something happens to me, I died filled with love. And not just for them, but for all the people plants and animals in this world. So (laughs) I bet all that sounds great. Family, adventure, making the world a better place. But the reason why I needed to write this letter to you now is because things aren't looking so good. The beast I mentioned, we discovered that every thousand years or so it pops back into existence fueled by the magic of this world and it decimates everything around it. We met a society that went entirely underground to avoid the beast's last coming. And at the time, I was pretty judgmental, but now, with everything going on, I get it. The world hasn't been the same since last year. The elements are attacking us. The first time it happened, the fire elementals appeared in our camp, but I was able to take care of it pretty easily. Um, I guess that's also a new thing. I'm pretty powerful now. Since then, though, things have only gotten worse, and the guilt that I feel each time I'm unable to save the people around me is building. I know that death is a natural part of life, of the world, but 
this kind of death feels so wrong. Good people dying because of errant magic feels wrong, and no one is safe from it. I trained a small group of spellcasters to fight the elements, and one of them died. Nara was a small kobold, one of my youngest trainees, and one day she got a little too overenthusiastic with the spell. She was trying to make herself immune to fire, but as the protective flames raced over her body, something went wrong and she exploded into a ball of fire. I don't know what happened, maybe an elemental magic surge, but by the time I got to her, it was too late to save her as she was. Ever since I became powerful enough to bring someone back from the dead, I always keep that magic prepared, but this was the first time I had to use it. Nara came back different, still enthusiastic, but muted and terrified of her magic. Oh, and she also came back as a human, so um, that was a big adjustment for everyone. Uh, I think she's doing okay, though. Or at least that's what she tells me. Seeing her now, the same but slightly different, it makes me wonder, what's going to happen the next time I have to cast that spell? And I know I will have to cast it again. Is it the magic of this world that brought her back different? The physical experience of being brought back? Or is it something wrong with my magic? That's not the only spell that hasn't gone exactly to plan. I got it into my head to try and create more soldiers from the world around me by awakening plants and animals who I thought might have the potential to help us turn the tide. The first time I tried and awakened something, I found a tiny sapling, and I thought that starting small would make it easier. Unfortunately for me, it didn't quite work out as planned. Even though I could speak to the sapling, and I know it understood me, it refused to listen to me. I tried to get it to extend its roots so it could move around, but it pretended that it couldn't hear me. And even though my magic was telling me that this plant was supposed to be my friend, I could tell it did not like me. I stayed out there for hours trying to befriend this sapling when I heard music coming through the forest. As soon as the sapling heard the music, it was entranced, leaves and limbs swaying in time with the rhythm. Flick turned the corner into the grove, pan flute in hand, and the sapling nearly ran me over trying to get to him, all the while chittering excitedly about the music. Ever since then, the sapling won't leave Flick alone. Sometimes, it'll curl itself around the broomstick when Flick is sleeping, and Flick won't notice until he sits on a particularly pokey branch the next morning. <laughs> I guess it's pretty funny. Bria and Bizdira certainly think so. And Flick doesn't seem to mind too much, so I guess it's okay. But I still feel like I did something wrong. I know that sapling was supposed to be my friend, and yet the question creeps up. What's going to happen the next time I need to cast a powerful spell? Will the magic of this world rebel against me? How can I protect my friends and family when my power might work against me? 
I know I have to keep trying, but that doubt is a constant shadow over my thoughts. That doubt scares me. I don't know if my siblings know how scared I am. I always try to put on a confident face to try to find the logical answers to the problems we face, but it's becoming harder and harder to trust that there's a reasonable solution for what we're about to see. We do have some reason for hope, though. The Alglorp, too complicated to explain what the Alglorp is right now, was able to create a body for an ancient and terrifying being named Rithmala to inhabit. She's been around since before the last time the beast attacked, so she's a well of knowledge. Since we've given her the means to walk around the last refuge freely, in a body with limitations, to say the least, she's been helpful. However, even when she is being helpful, she's always doing it in a way that feels off. One day, my siblings and I were discussing our plans for weakening the beast before the battle really begins, when we all suddenly felt compelled to stop talking and turn around. And there was Rathmala, waiting for our attention. As soon as we looked at her, she began outlining, step by step, every single thing we should do to theoretically use the island's keys to withdraw the elemental energy at each node. Now, I know that this is extremely important and helpful information that we do need, and I know that she doesn't mean to compel us, but it's hard to be grateful for the help when every time she inadvertently uses her magic, I see the briefest moment of panic in Bizdira's eyes. The information she's given us has been more useful than I care to admit, but I will never fully trust her. So, yes, there's reason to hope. Outside of Rathmala's help, our troops are prepared for battle, we've given them tools, we've researched strategy, and we've reached out to people across the world for help. But we've seen destruction at a level that is unimaginable. And I know that it's only the tip of the iceberg. I started to worry that everything we've done has been for nothing, that this power is just too all-consuming. We fought plenty of foes before, but this is something truly unimaginable. My siblings like to joke that I'm always right, that I always have the right answer to a question or to a problem. I really, really hope that I'm wrong about this. I really hope that we triumph, that all of us make it through to the end, that we put an end to the beast once and for all. And I hope that I live to see you again and hug you one more time. I hope. I hope you'll forgive me for disappearing, for not trying harder to write to you sooner. I hope you know how much I love you. Okay. That's enough of that. It's time to be positive, to believe that we can do it, to believe that I'll live, to deliver this letter to you myself, that I'll bring my siblings home to you one day and we'll tell you the whole story, no detail spared. We will survive. Love, Kit.
Oh, Kit. No matter what happens, she understands. She was an adventurer herself of a sort. She knows what kind of woman she raised. She knows that wherever you are, however your story ends, you did good. You helped people. You made the world a better place. And that is the greatest gift you could have ever given her. where we're going to leave it for this week. Thank you so much to listening to this week's episode of The Last Refuge. As always, I want to thank Robert Hupp, my story consultant for this campaign. I want to thank Alex and Karin for recording these beautiful, honest reflections of your characters at one of the hardest moments in their lives. And of course, I want to thank all of you for listening. I'm your friendly neighborhood dungeon master, DM Jazzy Hands. We'll see you all next in January as we begin our final season. Until then, happy gaming, y'all. <laughs>